and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. I'm Oliver, an internal medicine trainee based in London. And I'm Rob, a GP trainee based in Lincolnshire. And we're the TASME podcast team. Um, how's your week been, Rob? Everything all right? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Um, I'm quite lucky this week, so we recorded this in uh, we're recording this in May, so um, I'm now off for a couple of days, and then it's the final bank holiday on Monday, so I've got a nice five-day weekend coming up, and how bad can any week be when you know then you've got five days off? What about you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, not so lucky. Uh, it's ARCP season, which, as you can imagine, is a true delight to be a part of. Um, so the best, the less said about that, the better. So anyway, um, today we are delighted to be joined by a fantastic panel of doctors from across the country to celebrate Pride Month as part of ASME's wider celebrations of Pride Month. We will be exploring each of their career journeys and how they navigate their professional identity with their personal identity as an LGBTQ plus doctor. Thank you all for joining us this evening. Um, just to give our listeners a little bit of a flavour of um, who we're talking to tonight, I think it'd be a really good idea to start off with um, getting you all to tell us a little bit about yourselves and a little bit about your career to date. So I wondered if I could start with you, Chloe, if that's all right. Yeah, so my name's Chloe, pronouns she, they, and I'm currently working as a sexual health and HIV clinical fellow in South East London. Um, this is my FY3 year, so wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after F2 and went into this. Um, but in the summer, I'm due to start working as a public health ST1 in the West Midlands, which is really exciting. Um, and hopefully in the future, I'll be able to carry on the work that I've been doing for the last decade through medical school and also through um, my career so far as a doctor in LGBTQ plus specific um, healthcare and with a particular focus within that on trans and non-binary healthcare. Brilliant. Uh, thanks, Chloe, and it's great to have you with us today. Alex, I wonder if I could go to you next. Hi, thanks for having me here. Uh, my name's Alex Ashman. I'm an ENT registrar. I'm an ST8. In my seventh year of registrar training, thanks to COVID and thanks to being less than full-time so I can look after the kids one day a week, I um, am training in the Oxford Deanery, and previously I've been in various parts of the country doing um, you know, foundation training, core training, and as an ENT SHO before I was a registrar. Um, I am on the Women in ENT Surgery Committee and the Pride in Surgery Committee, and uh, I'm also on the Emerging Leaders Programme at the Royal College of Surgeons of England this year. Great. Thanks very much, Alex. And then, Andrew, if you could just give us a, a, an introduction to yourself and a brief overview of your career, please. Yeah, hi, I'm Andrew Hartle. I'm an FY36 anaesthetist in West London, um, based in Paddington. Um, uh, I've been a consultant at St Mary's for over 20 years. I started my career in anaesthetics in the Royal Air Force um, and was thrown out of the Air Force in the mid-90s as one of those last people who were dismissed from the armed forces for being gay. Uh, as well as being an anaesthetist, I've been a bit of a medical politician. I'm involved with GLAD um, and I chair the staff LGBTQ network for Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. Great. Thanks very much, Andrew. And thank you all again for joining us this evening. I think it, we'll have a really good discussion that will build on some of the things that we talked about in the Pride episode um, of the podcast last year. Um, 
But in this episode, I guess we really wanted to start to focus on personal identity and how our personal identity as LGBTQ plus people interacts with our professional identity as doctors, as clinicians. Um, because we know from evidence that people perform best when they bring their whole selves to work. And I'm sure that comes through with some of the work um, that you do in, in your staff network, Andrew. Um, but really, the literature would tell us that um, as people form their professional identity, they need to to merge that with their pre-existing personal identities. And I wondered whether this might be something we could pick up and maybe hear from each of you a little bit about your own journey. And actually, I wondered if I could start with you, Andrew, just because you come from that slightly different background with that armed forces bit. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's been an interesting journey. Um, so, um, it took me quite a long time to accept who I actually was before I even thought about taking them to work. Um, and of course I felt I, I faced a challenge, um, that, um, is perhaps difficult to understand in the 2020s of not being able to take that person to work. Um, and whilst it's perhaps obvious that that was more difficult in the military, um, and I could probably spend the whole program talking about what it was like to be in and thrown out of the military. But um, even once I'd left the RAF and joined the NHS, the NHS in the 90s um, wasn't the greatest place to be an out LGBT doctor or nurse or anything else, frankly. Um, and, and so I'm, I still pinch myself at times that I can be out and things like talking about my husband um, um, uh, and and just and, and chairing an LGBTQ network that's that's still quite new to me, um, it, it, and it's an experience I'm getting used to, um, and I'm incredibly envious of a younger generation who at least have been able to do that without fear of being sacked, even if it wasn't their first choice. Um, but I think medicine and the NHS still has so much further to go because. Although there are legal protections now, and I think the professions are more accepting, um, I still think people can be quite reluctant to bring their whole self to work. Um, um, and there are there are there are plenty of examples in 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 every specialty of um, um, not so subtle homophobia. Um, uh, you know, in every walk of life. So um, in theory, things are, are a lot better than they used to be, but they're still not perfect. Thank you for sharing that um, in your experiences. And I think I think people are going to echo lots of that. Um, Chloe, are you happy to tell us a little bit about your journey, about your professional identity? Yeah, so I am extremely lucky at the moment to work in sexual health. I think it's probably the most accepting of um, LGBTQ plus people just by virtue of the the specialty and sort of how it's developed over the last 50 years. We obviously work with a significant LGBTQ plus population and I know that professionally if I present and um sort of discuss LGBTQ plus issues with patients if I present as like very openly queer and you know introduce myself with pronouns um talk about my girlfriend things like that it really does help 
patients open up and I know that people who have struggled with that in healthcare settings before find that very valuable and it's it is a privilege to be able to give that to someone as as someone who um, hasn't necessarily had that from healthcare professionals as on the patient side of things so I think that's that's an amazing thing that I'm able to do now it's not the place I've always been in I know when I started as an F1 I wasn't really sure sort of how that was going to work it's there is a difference I think between being a student and being um, a doctor in that respect and I I was very very out and present as a student and I think when I started as an F1 I I didn't really hide it but it was more that I didn't kind of go out and um, make as big a deal of it as I might do nowadays and as I generally encourage people to do um but having said that my I've been really lucky that my experience in the NHS very broadly has been a positive one um culminating in my current role as a clinical fellow in sexual health great thank you and I think I um similarly I think it's that the change from being a medical student you probably you get that being you become comfortable with who you are as a medical student and that suddenly that new role new colleagues new responsibilities and your I definitely had that because I'm trained in London but then went and worked in East Manchester the foundation program in a really different part of the country um, and different and I, I remember that finding my feet with expressing who I was openly at work was a was a, a bit of a challenge and Alex are you happy to tell us a little bit about your experiences yeah. Um, so from my point of view, I went into surgical training, not really having any idea of like who I was, but still feeling quite sort of, you know, that sort of feeling of imposter syndrome. Like I don't really identify with these people here. Something not quite, something isn't quite right here. Um, and then having sort of realized I was trans, I then started picking up all the, on all the different things that people say that you don't recognize as being microaggressions, as being things that are just either that or just blatantly transphobic. Um, And from 2016 onwards, people have started saying things more because originally people didn't really know what what being trans was. And now now it's sort of well known. People openly say things like, oh, you can be anything, any days, sort of misgendering patients, you know, deliberately saying that the patient is trans when it has nothing to do with their care. and now that I'm sort of more openly telling some of my colleagues I'm non-binary, those things don't get said in front of me. But at the same time, some people kind of just don't believe my identity and I get all manner of sort of, uh, you know, deliberate sort of or accidental, you know, misgendering, wrong pronouns on things. So it's kind of a mixture of the things you hear and then when people know who you are, the sort of the treatment you get, it's all you know, you get kind of othered and treated differently in surgery still, I think. Thanks for sharing that, Alex, because I, I think it definitely resonates with me that and, and already what people have said, that there's such a difference between specialties. And I, I think um, I imagine that there's an element of that that's probably there's a geographical aspect as well, because I think working for me in Lincolnshire, I, I suspect that I hear... Um, a slightly less open view than perhaps I would do if I worked in a in a big city um certainly from some colleagues and that can be really quite challenging to hear um and feel like sometimes you have to carry um 
carry that burden in terms of yourself, but also for other people. And I certainly feel in my role as a as a GP trainee that I'm there to advocate for patients because I I know particularly trans and non-binary patients don't have the best experience of healthcare. I think all LGBTQ plus people don't to some extent, but I do think that that's worse for trans and non-binary people. And I feel like that's that's part of that how that personal how you feel personally has to tie in with that professionalism from that perspective and feeling that maybe the burden to stand up for that patient group disproportionately um sits with us um andrew you... yeah i mean one, one of the things that's, that struck me listening to oliver and chloe is um um that I made a very sudden transition on, I can name the day and the month and the year when I suddenly went from being no one knows who I am to everyone knows who I am. And that has very much coloured my career, but also the way I've been as an out gay doctor, um, because I had no choice. Uh, Once you have been outed, you can't go back in. Um, And I don't think if I'd had the choice, I would have been as out for the last 25 years as I have been. Um, and in fact, I, I, I was a very establishment gay. I think I, I think there's a lot of the last part of me that felt that because I was out, uh, and in many, many occasions was the first out gay man to do a number of things. I was the first out gay man to be a consultant in my department. I was the first out gay man to run the department. And then in my political career, I've, you know, I've broken a number of pink ceilings and done things for the first time. So I had no role models to, to judge what that, but I think I was a very establishment gay. I didn't want to scare the horses. You know, you would not have found a more suited and booted conventional conforming uh, anesthetist for a lot of my career than me. And it just, and, and I don't think as I approach retirement, um, I don't think that was actually me. I think I spent an awful lot of my time pretending to be something that I wasn't necessarily. But at the same time, the fact that I held those roles, I was in that position, I think I pushed the agenda in many places. Um, I I don't claim to be responsible for it, but my department has gone from a very conventional, traditional, conservative, probably with upper and lower case Cs, um, to a very diverse, very pink department um, um, in in the space of a generation, and, and, and but I also recognise that enormous geographical difference as well. There is a huge difference, uh, not just not just London centric, but metropolitan centric versus um, more provincial. Not I mean that just geographically, because you know I know Lincoln well. My parents live in Lincolnshire, I, I absolutely recognise the different experience in Lincolnshire versus London. Um, so I don't know what I, what I what my choice would have been. Uh, in many ways, I'm lucky I never had to make that choice. And, and so I've been a fairly out, uh, proud individual pushing, pushing boundaries, um, but at the all, same time also being quite conforming. Um, I think it's really interesting listening to Andrew's experience of, of what things were like sort of as a professional um out in the workplace in the 90s because obviously in my role um in sexual health we see people of lots of different ages and of lots of different professions and it's really interesting like the language and the tone and the sort of vibe that you have to have with different people of different ages in order to be able to engage with 
them and their sexuality and their gender presentation in terms that they understand and in terms that they use for themselves and they respect. I think it's something that I've learned a lot about um, just sort of over the years when I've been doing research in this area as a, as a student and as a professional, that having having the ability to engage with someone on those terms can do a lot for them in order to not just increase their confidence, but also increase their um, trust in the healthcare system. And I think listening to Andrew's experience just sort of really drives that home in that you can't assume the experience of every LGBTQ plus professional is the same. You can't assume the experience of every LGBTQ plus patient is the same. And I know that some of my colleagues of sort of my medical generation really struggle to um, engage with people younger and people older because it's a very, it's a really different experience. And it's, you know, everyone, every one of us on this call will know that we've had an extremely individual experience to get to the point that we're at. And I, I think it's, it's unreasonable on, on your own, you know, it's unfair on yourself to be able to take that on and be able to discuss that in detail with every patient. But recognizing it is, is the first step. And for me, that was sort of a bit of a light bulb moment, I think, both professionally and personally. Thank you. And as we've um, spoken a little bit about your uh, different experiences of coming to terms with who we are, has anyone had any role models that have helped them with that journey of of building their identity as an out um, LGBTQ plus clinician? I think it's it's always nice to have consultants to look up to and again I'm going to sing the praises of sexual health it's you're going to find out queer consultants in that specialty possibly more than in others um and I'm extremely lucky to have that in my in my job and I know that it's made me a better patient advocate for the patients that I see currently because you know they they don't only advocate for the LGBTQ plus patients they they recognize that um sort of difference I suppose and I mean that in the terms of mainstream difference societal difference um, can hit people very hard and it obviously doesn't just hit queer people it hits um, brown people it hits disabled people it hits women um, it hits trans people all in very different ways and I think having those role models be able to say if you think there's something not right and you think there's something that we can help with then please come to us and please say because we we are able to learn and maybe some of our experiences will help to push that forward for that person and build something better for the whole group in the end. I think that's a really nice way of of looking at it and I think you put that really well, Chloe. I wondered, I, I guess you've already touched on it to some, to some extent, Alex, but I, I get the impression that things in surgery are quite a long way behind where sexual health is as a specialty. So I've only just met my role models in the last couple of years in terms of actual, you know, LGBTQ plus role models, um, because we have the Pride and Surgery Forum that we've just, you know, put together in the last year and a, year and a bit with the Royal College of Surgeons of England. So, you know, Ginny Bobrick, who's going to be the first out and proud um, council member for the Royal College of Surgeons of England, she's an amazing role model. Um, you know, but in my own specialty, I don't know anyone, you know, and in my training, I've not met that many people that would fit into that box but I've had to take my role models where I can so you know a lot of our 
female consultants or consultants of colour are excellent role models in their own right because they also get what it's like to not be the sort of traditional average surgeon. So, you know, it's no good necessarily as all expecting to see someone exactly like us. We can try and be that person for the next generation. But from our point of view, we have to learn from whoever we can learn from and and, uh, not repeat their mistakes in their own activism or their own careers. I think that's a really good point, actually, because I think I think actually my if I think about people that have been role models for me and and I'll be honest I don't necessarily think they've been lots of them and the ones whilst I've met some fantastic GP role models um in my training most of them have worked in really urban areas and again one of the things that's been really difficult about that is them not necessarily understanding the difference in context and an understanding uh, I share this quite often that I find it really hard to navigate how patients might feel about having a gay doctor so I try quite hard to be openly gay in my consulting room in terms of um, Oliver will be sick of hearing about my pride lego set but there is a pride lego set sat on my desk Um, I have a pronoun badge um, on I have um, a progress pride flag on my lanyard they're quite subtle things but I I think they're important but I I've I remain anxious as to know what will happen when one of my um, slightly less open-minded, for want of a better way of describing it, patients that I know exist in my practice, picks up on that and makes a big deal of it, which I, I feel is inevitable. And I think having role models who understand that from that slightly more um, geographical perspective is also really important. And I've been lucky that when I was an F2, I worked for a... Um, gay gastro consultant who helped me navigate some of that and I thought that was really helpful um to be honest for me I wondered Andrew just out of interest whether you had any role models because I appreciate there's there's obviously been that slight difference in generations there yeah I've been been thinking about this quite long and hard and and I I think the answer probably is no um or rather I've had role models I've had consultants who I've admired who were great anaesthetists um, and I've had role models, uh, you know, and I've, I've either admired their technical skill or their, you know, their calmness. But, I, you know, there hasn't, for fairly obvious reasons, um, there just weren't any other out um, consultants in any specialty that I can think of. I, if I, one of the things that um, I, I was vaguely remembering a conversation when I, when I did general practice as a medical student, um, we spent a fortnight living with a GP, um, in my case, in York. And I was sitting having dinner with the GP partner and his wife one evening. And I have no idea how the conversation came around to this. Um, uh, but the, he, and he was a, a very senior GP principal in the 80s. And he said, um, well, I don't know why. Why would you talk about this? I don't know. But basically, he said, you know, every department has a to- every ho- every DGH has a token lesbian gynaecologist, and that's it. And 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 that was the only out acceptable role. I think it was the only discussion. I think there was. I mean, you know, the eighties in particular, and the early days of the HIV/AIDS crisis was a really bad time to come out. Um, you know, you know, I'm I'm so old. I was a predate Section Twenty Eight. Um, but I think it, it was always difficult to be out. So it was very difficult to be a role model. Um, when I think back before I was a consultant, I think there was only one other consultant I can think of that was 
In fact, he don't think he was even out. I think he, we just all assumed he was. Um, and interestingly enough, I didn't think he was a great role model. Um, so, um, uh, and there's that thing about just because you're gay doesn't mean you're a good role model. Um, uh, and, and I do sometimes wonder that, that um, uh, am I a role model or am I a pioneer? Because they're not the same thing. So I think um, I don't know whether I'm a role model. All I've demonstrated is it is possible to be, to have a successful career and be out. Um, but that doesn't mean that people should necessarily follow my example. I wondered whether, to move on to a slightly less positive note, whether anyone had had any challenges. I know I'm sure you've had quite a lot, Andrew, in your career, but and you've already alluded to some of them, but any challenges with how your identity has been perceived in the workplace? Um, so interestingly enough, I think once I was out, the answer is no. Um, and I've said that before. And actually, um, so being being outed in a Sunday tabloid and dismissed was, was both the, the absolutely worst thing that has ever ever happened to me. I, I mean, I can't um, can't emphasize just how absolutely shocking it was as an experience, and I you know has changed me and my life and my career. Um, but it was instantaneously one of the most liberating experiences because. Um, Almost everything I feared had happened. I was out. I was going to be thrown out of the Air Force. And of course, once that's happened, there's no looking back. You know, once, once you're out of that closet, um, you are well and truly out. Um, and um, I, think, I, can, I think since that moment, there have been um, a, a one or two inadvertent moments. I, I, and I, I, I hate to stereotype, but, you know, there was a, an incident that's involving orthopedic surgeons who were new to the hospital and didn't know who I was, but found out quite quickly after their comments, which were not aimed at me, but were about the patient. Um, so people have made comments not knowing who I was. Um, but I think because I'm so out and, and, and certainly more recently is so prominent, um, no one has ever dared say anything um, and I don't I'm not aware that anyone has ever said anything detrimental about me. That's not I have no idea what people say about me behind my back or when I'm not there. Um, um, so I think, it, you know, I've had, the, you know, I've had as as you know, okay, I didn't go to prison. Um, um, and I'm alive and well, but I, I, I've not had any negative experiences on the basis of my sexuality since December 1996, which is probably not bad. Thanks, Andrew, for sharing that as well, because I appreciate it must still have been as a really significant life-changing experience. I'm sure in lots of ways it's hard to think back to. Chloe, have you had any negative experiences at all? Um, not personally I don't think it's I mean I suppose I'm quite lucky because I'm very tall and I just am relatively confident person and that will actually get you quite far in a lot of medical settings um I know I suppose in terms of negative experiences that I have sort of been witness to there have been some of my um trans and um female colleagues who 
have had things said to them or people have said things about them when I've been there and therefore I've had to deal with that either sort of on their behalf because they're clearly very they were clearly very uncomfortable um in that situation and um one one time one of them actually just asked me to just deal with it for them if that was okay and I was like absolutely send me in can't wait um so yeah personally no I've I've been very lucky um like Andrew was saying you don't know what people say behind your back but then I suppose that's their problem if they've they want to talk about me then you know they're they're wasting their own time um but yeah I I have had to do it on behalf of other people and I'm happy to do so and I think that that's that's another important thing that we should consider is that if you are able to if it is safe to then having that fight or that conversation on behalf of someone who's unable is is as important as being um able to sort of advocate uh, advocate and keep yourself safe as well thanks chloe Alex, again, I don't, I don't want this to become the pick on surgery show, um, but again, uh, I, wonder, I do wonder whether you might have had um, any more negative experiences. Yeah, I mean, I promise I'll talk about the positive ones later, but to answer the question, I mean, I have my bag of microaggressions and various slights that everyone picks up as a minority, and that's, that is what it is. Um, the example I would usually give is the time I was on a regional training day in front of all of my registrar colleagues and the consultant surgeon giving a talk just turned to me at one point and said, Alex, if your hair gets any longer, you're going to have to start wearing a dress and calling yourself Alexi and, you know, haha, isn't that funny? And then he kind of went off on one about how he catheterized the trans patient once, bearing in mind this is not, um, you know, that kind of surgery that we're talking about in my specialty. So It was just a very weird and disruptive experience. And yes, it didn't do any sort of physical harm to me. The fact I'm still thinking about it several years later, the fact that I'm supposed to be concentrating on learning rather than, you know, on earth just happened. It's one of those, one of those situations that just, you know, and you get the sort of little, little microaggressions every day that also affect you. And it's like the same as when someone's rude at work it sort of reduces your cognitive ability, it reduces your ability to concentrate. And it's it's not great for me, it's not great for the people around me if I'm not at 100% either. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the, um, your, whilst most of us here haven't experienced things directly to us, you overhear things and therefore it, it, there is an impact on your psycholo- psychological safety in the team that you're working. It's like, well, they're saying that about the patient, what are they saying about me? Those kind of things have definitely been like, that's definitely gone through my thought process. And therefore, if we're not, we, part of my job has been in as a sim instructor and sim facilitator, and you're talking about psychological safety and risk taking and all that kind of thing all the time. And if you don't have that at work, it's, it's really hard to like, number one, be your authentic self or number two, just be the best you can be as a clinician person at work and that's really difficult uh, in a different way I just I guess wanted to build on that Oliver and I I think I did talk about this in last year's Pride episode a little bit but where I think having only once at work been subjected to homophobic comments I can't put into words fully exactly the level of impact it had on me and the lasting level of impact it's had on me with certain colleagues I'm feeling about suddenly actually it's not something I've been fully aware of and I I guess that I carry a certain amount of privilege for being um, 
born in the 90s but actually it's the first time that that had happened to me and it really did leave me feeling like oh maybe I can't be this person maybe maybe there's more I think I took my safety for granted I suppose is probably the best way of wording it and it it's left me um with that kind of feeling like I actually I do have to check myself I don't I'm I'd gone from having reached a point in my career where I was quite happy to be out to all colleagues to now actually I've gone back a little bit where when I meet new colleagues it's gone back to being a choice I make again and I think that's a really sad place to be particularly in in this happened during the pandemic so probably 2021 but I, I don't think very much has changed since then. Yeah, I mean, this is something that Philippa Burns, um, a consultant surgeon from Scotland, was saying to us about being um, a trans woman. And something that I understand as well is that when you go from being presenting as cishet, straight, you know, to suddenly not being that, you lose a lot of privilege. And that can actually, to a certain extent, be dangerous or jeopardize your career. And you, you do have to put your safety first. And, you know, from my point of view, most definitely not telling everyone everything, but word gets out and you do wonder what people are saying. So I'm, I was also struck by the use of the word privilege um, because I am increasingly conscious of my privilege as a white, middle-class, university-educated male who happens also to be gay. And I talked earlier about being a very establishment gay um, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, so outside of medicine, I'm, I'm, I'm very heavily involved with a charity called Fighting with Pride, which fights for the rights of LGBT veterans who are dismissed from the military. And when I compare my experience with that of the majority of them, I've had a very privileged, protected background, partly because of when I was dismissed from the Air Force. So relatively late in the, t- in the process, so very close before the ban was lifted. So my experience was not quite as horrific as others. Um, but because I still had a career to fall back on and I was a white, ed- educated, middle-class male. Um, so the some of, some of why well, I talk about my life being changed, their lives have been in many cases destroyed and they are in their 60s, 70s and 80s and didn't have the privilege to fall back on. But separately in my, not quite my full-time day job, but in my role as the, the staff network chair, um, I'm very conscious, again, that I am a white, you know, pale male, stale um, chairman of a network because it's much easier for me to get time off to do that sort of stuff. But I'm absolutely, whilst I represent the members of my network, I am in no way representative um, uh, of the members of the, of the network who are predominantly female, um, non-Caucasian um not medical um and i think um i don't think necessarily as doctors we understand how bad our other healthcare colleagues have it um you know it is i don't think it's any easier to be um a lesbian or trans nurse as it is you know uh, you know compared to the privilege that we experience um a lot of my colleagues have come from overseas have a very different cultural experience they're still not comfortable about being out and understanding the you know the legal social cultural or professional implications of that um and then there's a whole part of the the organization that i really have no insight to which is the non-healthcare part of my organization so you know the hotel services the porters the cleaners you know 
which is a sort of a, you know, is a huge unknown area, uh, which cannot be free of LGBT staff, but there's no engagement with them. Um, and so privilege, I don't think, I think very few of us recognise our privilege, even when we're, when we're having a bad day, our privilege is enormous. Uh, the challenges of being LGBT if you're not white, male, qualified, um, professional um, are, are, are much, much greater. Yeah, I, I think Andrew hits the nail on the head, to be honest. It's, I know in my job, you know, I'm a brown um, sort of female presenting, I suppose, person to the majority of patients who walk in. But when they walk into the room, I'm the doctor and they're the patient. It doesn't, well, sometimes it does, but the majority of the time, it doesn't matter what age they are or their sort of demographic profile. The fact that I've got doctor before my name overrides a lot of that. And I am acutely aware of that in the same way that I'm very aware of how my appearance doesn't necessarily confer that privilege on me in other settings. So, you know, when I, I live in South London and when I'm out and about, um, you know, on the weekend or something, if there's an event happening where there's like quite a heavy police presence, for example, like I'm acutely aware of what the police are up to. Um, I go to a lot of pride events. Again, I am acutely aware of what the police are up to. And I think it's always about having the vision out the corner of your eye as um, as an LGBTQ person in certain situations or as a brown person, um, trans person, disabled person, you know, you could put any prefix to that. And I think that is something that a lot of the healthcare um, professionals who I've interacted with previously who maybe don't quite understand why we continue to have these sorts of podcasts and why we keep having these conversations, it's because they don't go to those events looking out the corner of their eye all the time. Um, and it's exhausting. It's absolutely knackering when, you know, your your friends are like, oh, we'll go to Pride. But all of you know, there's an unspoken rule that all of you know, you know, if the if something starts kicking off, you've got to have an exit plan. Um, and especially, you know, as as a doctor, I'm also acutely aware that if anything goes wrong and someone gets injured, I have to go respond to that. You know, it's that's an extra layer of of responsibility on there, which, again, you know, yes, I have the privilege to be able to do that, but it it does make certain events incredibly stressful when you're also wondering if that situation does arise and the police get there before you do, what what are you going to be met with? So, yeah, it's a tricky one to balance, but I think that's why these conversations are incredibly helpful because you know that you're not out there on your own in that situation usually. Thank you. And... um I know we've talked about some of the challenges that we've had and we've also alluded to some of the positive experiences that people have had and um I wonder sort of if you if there's a, a highlight that 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 you've had in your career that has been as a as a LGBTQ plus clinician what that is. Um and uh Chloe, are you happy to go first? My absolute highlight is it literally happened last week and I thought I was in there at the moment. I thought I'm going to talk about this for years. Um, There was an older lady who um, came into clinic and she 
had had some treatment a couple of weeks before and she was just having a follow-up to make sure that everything was okay um but she I'd seen her the first time and we sort of you know struck quite a good chord and I saw her the second time and she she said oh I've, I've got a question to ask you I said please do I love love it I love when patients say that um and she essentially wanted to know about different sex toys she's recently out as a queer woman in her early 70s and she's just never had sex toys before and I was like right we're going on Google I'm showing you all the best places I'm showing you everything that's available and and we sat there probably we're quite lucky we get quite long appointments in, in sexual health and I reckon we sat there probably for about 25 minutes looking up various bits and pieces and honestly I'm, I, I made her day she made my day and yeah that is 100% top top of my list of reasons why I still <laughs> persist in doing this job that's amazing. I think that possibly is the best uh, anecdote that we've had in any podcast episode of any sort. Um, and I think that would be quite hard for future guests to top. Um, Alex, have you, Gwen, I know you alluded earlier that you would give us a positive example. So I'm quite conscious we probably should get that in. <laughs> Thank you. And for one thing, I somehow made myself apply for the Emerging Leaders Programme at the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And previously they've said, this, this, is a, this is a programme for, you know, women in surgery. And then they said, oh, it's a new revised programme. We'd like to invite women and non, non-binary people. And I was like, okay, do they mean non-binary people as in, you know, people they think are women? Or do they actually mean non-binary people? Like, you know, it's really difficult to pick these things apart. But I, I went and applied. I got an interview. And at the interview, I asked them, like, do you actually want me to be in this? You know, are you actually after someone who looks like me? And they said, yes, of course we are. We don't, you know, that's not the matter. It's like what you're doing in terms of the work you're doing um, and who you are is what important, what's important, not sort of, you know, they, they were really supportive, really wonderful about it. And that's just, it's so refreshing in the world of surgery to meet some wonderful supportive people like that and have them just say, yeah, we're not going to look at you funny. We're not going to sort of, judge you for being different we, we're interested in what you've got to bring to the table instead that's amazing I think um I'm not a surgical trainee don't work but seeing the the change in the sort of communication and the really positive the um with prism the RCS um network and the changes they've been which are so um well I think they're prominent caveated by the potential Twitter, med Twitter echo chamber that have died. But I think that that change has been, to someone very external to surgery, has been really um, obvious and uh, positive. And I think there are some rural colleges that could definitely do more and other organisations within the wider healthcare scape that sort of could really learn from that response. And I'm, I'm glad that's been such a good experience for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to say, we've already had our colleagues in um, Australia and New Zealand, Asheria, start up their own pride in medicine and surgery, kind of following on from what our organisation and other people have done. And we've been talking to other specialties about whether they might want to do the same thing as well. So hopefully it will snowball. I really want to see it snowball. I want all these colleges that historically don't do this to just get on and do it. Andrew, has there been a highlight for you? I think that there are two that are slightly linked. Um, uh, uh, so um, I talked about having broken various pink sea links. Um, and I, I, I remember um, 
in my second year um, as president of the Association of Anaesthetists, I, I was about to, I was giving the, the speech at the end of the, di- the dinner. Um, and um, I made some comment about David Cameron not being, uh, not being, not being a great fan of David Cameron, but I had one thing to thank him for, um, which was that I was going to be the first president of the Association of Anaesthetists to open a speech with my husband and I, um, which, um, and that was a really, that was a very personally special moment because, um, um, you know, we didn't have, we hadn't had a female president yet, um, but I was the first, first president with a husband, um, which was personally very satisfying um, and got quite a big round of applause. Um, but um, despite my having said I was a very establishment gay and hadn't scared the horses um, and, 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 and really didn't, uh, didn't, I think, do, I didn't think I'd done as much to promote uh, equality and diversity when I held those national elected offices I perhaps could have done. Um, but I did, I did meet a couple of years later uh, an anaesthetist, um, in fact, from North Lincolnshire, um, um, who said that when he read one of my regular news updates in our in Anesthesia News, the, the sort of the, the monthly news journal, uh, and I'd made some reference um, to my husband, um, and and he vowed from that day that he would stop referring to his partner and would start talking about his boyfriend. And he said, if the president of the association can talk to, can admit that he's got a husband, I think I can. Um, and I, I think that's probably, I think that's, I think, I'm not sure if that's nudge theory, but it's the only example I've got that I made anything better for another LGBT uh, anesthetist. I, I, and, and, you know, I still feel, I didn't find out about that for years, but that one moment made me feel that it was all worthwhile. I think that's a really nice anecdote, and I think you shouldn't underestimate when we talk. I know we talked about role models earlier, but I think role modelling takes lots of different forms, and it, it's sometimes just an action, isn't it? And I think that that one action and doing that clearly made a difference to that individual. But I think if I think back at people that have made that difference to me, sometimes it can be as simple as that one small action on one occasion that we can learn from and and take forward. Alex, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted, because you mentioned role models and making a difference to just one person. I remember uh, Joe Hartland, you had them on the podcast for the last Pride episode, I think. Uh, they tweeted a little while ago saying they spoke to a final year med student who just come out of trans as, and she was really worried because she couldn't have a career in surgery anymore. So Joe told her about um, Pride and Surgery Forum and apparently her face just lit up and it's just lovely to hear that sort of thing. Um, so I think we probably, you know, by doing what we do, we can all make a difference to lots of people. We might not always get to see it, but uh, I think it's worthwhile. I think that's a really nice um, anecdote, Cher. I saw that on Twitter last week and I, I wasn't having the best week. And actually that really cheered me up. And, and that's got nothing to do with me. It just did make me smile to think that there are things out there for students in those positions that I'm not sure were there when I was a student even. And I think to see how far we've moved on, um, moved on in the last, I was about to age myself slightly too much, last 10 years um, plus, I think it's made a really big difference. And actually similarly, my positive is a conversation that I had with a medical student. Um, so I work for medical school one day a week and a conversation I had with a medical student about four months ago. Um, and just where I could give them some advice but and that they came to me because they knew that I was an openly gay doctor 
who worked in primary care and they were able to go through a scenario of something that happened to them that wasn't necessarily a positive, but I was able to help them because of my background. And I think for me, that would be my positive and my way of um, going, you know what, actually making those little differences on a day-to-day basis can be as important as the really big sweeping ones. I guess just to wrap things up then, I think it'd be nice to just think about what, what advice we could give our listeners. Many of our listeners have formal roles in medical education and thinking about everything that we've sort of thought about today and pulled together. What one piece of advice would you give um, someone who works in medical education in supporting LGBTQ plus learners on their career journey? Anyone want to go first? I'm going to give a shameless plug for the Future Learn course that I helped to write, Transgender Healthcare. Um, you just go on Future Learn and search that. Um, I That, I think, is illustrative of the drop in the ocean that a lot of us kind of contribute to this. It's, it's a huge field. Um, I personally have been doing med ed stuff on um, LGBTQ+ healthcare ever since I was a first year student at uni um so I I did a degree before medicine and it was way way back then so yeah 10 years ago and things have changed so much then and and there are so many medical schools that are much more on the boat now so I would I would encourage people to look up um Lima they're a really good organization um who are sort of working their way into medical schools um doing lots of different educational bits um the future learn course um I am always happy to take questions from people or help with slides and that sort of thing. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me on Twitter, and I think all of that basically is to sum up and say, reach out, find people who've done it before. Um, Don't try and reinvent the wheel. It's a lot of work and there will always be more work for you to do. So please, please do reach out and just get the resources that already exist so that you can springboard off those because it's too much work for you to be going back and doing what we've all tried to do before. I was going to say, I have to say the future learn course was brilliant. Um, thank you so much for making that. I've got the certificate. I probably didn't need to do most of it, but you know, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I would agree. There are so many, you know, gender one oh ones out there that people have written and they get bored after them. They don't get any further and the real meat and research of it doesn't get done. So I'd say actually find out what the areas of knowledge are that are lacking because there are so many things we don't know about care um, for various minority groups and to actually bother to go and do that research and build on what we already know rather than spending all our time proving the problem or reinventing the wheel to actually look into ways of solving problems and to do proper high quality work would be greatly substantially better than just producing basic resources that already exist. Exactly what you said. And listening to minorities and going out and educating yourself when you have the resources. You know, Google exists. Don't ask people awkward questions, you know, face to face. Go and Google it first. And then if you don't quite understand, you'll know a lot more to start off with. I think doing the thing that you're interested in as well, like that will keep you motivated. If there's a particular area that you really want to do, there was someone who asked me about, um, it was sex work in... Uh, Filipino communities like um, queer Filipino communities and I was like yeah go do that please I want to read it come back to me and tell me when you've written it because 
you know, that's as important as any other aspect. So even if you just think, oh, it's a tiny area, no one's going to be interested, that's going to make a huge difference to someone. So go and do that thing that you love because the rest of us want to read it. And I was probably going to say intersectionality, by which I mean don't pigeonhole everything. Um, people don't fit conveniently into pigeonholes. Um, so there's sexuality, there's gender, there's ethnicity, there's background, there's education, um, there's metropolitan or urban, and you know the spectrum of individuality is is in fact it's multidimensional. Um, so uh, I, I think. I think particularly people who have grown up in, a, in, a, in fact, my generation tend to pigeonhole very much, and I'm, I'm, and I perhaps was as guilty as that um, as anybody else. And in fact, my my work chairing a network um, has opened my eyes significantly because I meet with the women's network, the disabled network, the uh, race network, and and we have members in common. Uh, and, and, and even, even to the extent that actually some of those, some groups you can be, uh, I know, some groups are more challenging. So some um, some cultural groups have very strong religious group um, identities, which don't get on particularly well with the LGBT network. Or, or, or it's not that they don't get on, but but there is an, an antagonism there. So recognizing that the needs of a LGBT Muslim. Uh, are different from an LGBT, no religion or Catholic or whatever. So it's um, stop, don't pigeonhole, recognise that sexuality and gender identity are just part of an individual. And, and the key thing is bringing your whole self to work. And that's not just your whole sexuality, but it's the whole of you. And that uh, it should be just part of life's rich pattern. And, and leading on from that, I'd say people should always make sure that just because they're in one minority group, they don't assume that they're immune to, you know, just because you're queer doesn't mean you can't be racist. You've got to be careful if you're in a white queer group not to let everyone be racist or, or fat phobic or, you know, classist or anything like that. You have to make sure you educate yourself about the things you're not. You have to listen to the people who you are not, where you're the majority group still. And you have to turn up for each other. It's no good just working in silo for your own your own redemption or your own revolution, because actually until all of us are free, none of us are. Until everybody is free to be themselves at work, then we're not finished our work. I think that's such a lovely place to end this discussion. Um, and with I, where I always like when we end with a bit of a call to arms. Thank you so much, all of you, for such a rich discussion tonight and, and so much to go away and think about, um, reflecting where we've come from, but but also where we've still got to go. Um, so thank you very much. That was such a really great discussion. Um, I really, really enjoyed hearing, um, at the end in particular, Alex's sort of call to arms for all educators and, and for everyone really that comes from whether it be an LGBTQ plus background or any marginalized group about the fact that actually until we're all in the same place and all truly have equity that our work isn't finished and I think that's really given me a lot to go away and think about what I can do in my practice as an educator going forward. Yeah absolutely um, I wanted to pick up on the sort of the discussion we had about 
um, the microaggressions that may not be directed at us, although in some cases are, um, but the experience that has on us as our, and particularly on our, uh, our well-being at work of just hearing those um, those comments being made. And I think it's really important that we, as Chloe mentioned, when it's safe to do so, being the active bystander and challenging those and I think seeking out good active bystander training and just educating yourself a little bit more on the as you said the air sorry the areas that are not our own area and I've also done the future learn course that Chloe helped write and it's excellent really interesting really clinically relevant um, and I've used it a few good few times in my practice. So we'll leave a link to that in the show notes today. Thank you again to our guests, Dr. Chloe Rogers, Dr. Alex Ashman, and Professor Andrew Hartle for sharing such personal reflections on their career journeys and experiences. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast platform. You can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at our website asme.org.uk and make sure you give us a follow on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. Thanks to the wider podcast team and the TASME committee as well as Amalunya for our theme music. Thank you for listening to TASME time and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Mm-hmm.